Welcome to The Difference Engine, the show for founders, funders, and the category curious. Don't confuse size, don't confuse valuation with category leadership. I'm not the only person frustrated by this. You disagree with my analysis. I do. You either acquire or you are acquired. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And it's proof that you're winning the argument. We all know history is written by the winners. Hello. Welcome to The Difference Engine. Today, it's my pleasure to be talking with Pat Morrissey, currently Chief Customer Officer at San Francisco-based Hireview. He's now transforming the way organizations discover, engage, and hire the best talent. But previously, he was CMO at Altify, CRO at Simpler, VP of Strategic Alliances, Industry ISV, and Channel Sales at Salesforce, and VP Marketing at Business Objects, amongst other category leaders. And rumor has it, hailing originally from Iowa, he was once a childhood cheese model. Welcome, Pat Morrissey, to The Difference Engine. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. We know, looking back, that Salesforce has an amazing category design record. Was Salesforce always going to be the CRM category leader? I would argue, yeah. In hindsight, it is a no-brainer that Salesforce was going to be the leader in the clubhouse. And I think part of the reality of that discussion is they had just been very disciplined about telling a big story that really is focused on the world's a different place. We understand it uniquely and we've got something for everybody. And I think one of the things, Jonathan, that people miss about Salesforce is they have been fundamentally telling that same story for 20 years. I gather Benioff's keynotes at Dreamforce are are things to behold in in that respect. Well, yes, the people come from all over the world. But if you you dissect that, and I know you do as, as somebody who's been in the communications industry for a while... They always start the same. And now there's a little bit of a Hawaiian dance when, when Dreamforce kicks off, but he goes through the power of the cloud and the 111 model and the transformation from, you know, he always talks about some version of it started with, you know, mainframe and went to client server and went to PC and then ultimately it went to the cloud. And now there's a new thing. In this case, I think this year was all about AI. Surprise, surprise. But if you think back to the hindsight, they just had a different approach to the, you know, the model, the business. Uh, the communication that they wanted to have and, and actually their approach in the industry. And they have just been relentless about bringing that message to the masses. And you see that reflected in their business results. Those business results are pretty damn spectacular, aren't they? I mean, in 10 years, they've gone from a turnover of $4.1 billion to the guidance for this year, which is $34.8 billion. I mean, that is relentless double-digit growth all the way through the pandemic all the way through their current turndown. What happens internally in a company to take that category vision into this relentless execution machine, which Benioff appears to have built? The mistake that I think a lot of people make when they look at Salesforce is that the Salesforce is some version of either a marketing company or an event company. And they do, you know, brilliant marketing and amazing events. But what I saw when I got in the door was that they are just a very sophisticated, very disciplined at scale sales machine that happens to have the benefit of having a a CEO and Mark Benioff who has a really high marketing IQ and is really thinking creatively and differently all the time. And they go out with a mission to win and have from the very earliest days. I think if you, if you think back to when Salesforce was, you know, sound founded, you know, circa 1999, 
you know, the first insight was that the old world of perpetual software and, you know, maintenance fees and, and CDs was just going to go the way of, you know, the dodo and they were, everything was going to move into what that at the time they were calling software as a service, you know, fast forward to 2008 when I was there, part of the insight there was software as a service is still kind of a clunky name. People don't necessarily get it, but the aspiration at that time was we're going to bring the platform and the applications together in in one stack and and really want to pervasively attack the enterprise. But more importantly, we need to simplify and elevate this entire conversation into what all of us know as cloud computing. Now, so I remember sitting in meetings and having you know, with the marketing, the senior leaders of the marketing team, and we were looking at Google Analytics and a whole bunch of other data, the net of which was, we think this nascent thing called cloud is going to take off. We want to own that dialogue. Let's be all in on promoting and evangelizing this new thing about the cloud. And it was a way to really, again, elevate the conversation, differentiate the dialogue from what everybody else was having. And oh, by the way, hey, if the first thing was about software as a service, this is going to get even better, simpler, and more sophisticated. And, you know, Salesforce understands this uniquely, and we're going to bring this to you. It's a very, very interesting, and I hesitate to use the word, but agile way of doing things. We know that one of the key things you can do when you're going on the category journey is develop a really compelling point of view. Now, it sounds to me that one of the things that Salesforce has been able to do is to constantly revisit, update, move forward that point of view. They have, and as well as they've taken liberties around what that looks like based on what's going on in the marketplace, right? So some things are consistent. They always talk about the power of the cloud being democratic. It's great for small companies and nonprofits the same way it's great for the biggest of the big uh, organizations. And they talk about it in terms of being something for the enterprise that delivers value for everybody. But I think when you go back and particularly you see this at Dreamforce, you know, at, at various levels, they've talked about, well, the rise of, of the service cloud. And they talked about social enterprise for a while when when that was very hot. And then they talked about IoT and the Internet of Things and so on and so on. There's always a new chapter being unfolded. And, you know, if you look at, you know, Dreamforce this last year, they very much were talking about, hey, the, this is all about the emergence of AI and, and really making that the feature attraction. And it turns out they were right on time because now we're all talking AI, right? So the the core of where they come from remains the same, but their aspiration in terms of how do they bring benefit and value and a different point of view about how the world should work, you know, continues to be something that, that is new and fresh every single year. They certainly are a masterclass in evolving their category. If we can consider that Salesforce is one of the best, if not the best, uh, as an example of tech category creation and evolution, which other companies would you consider uh, as doing it well? It's an interesting question because I don't think, by and large, a lot of organizations do it that well. Um, part of the the goodness of technology is that you know everybody has the opportunity to create something new, and I think that's what's so exciting for me living in Silicon Valley is there's always a new, new thing, and that optimism and that breakthrough pretends a lot of exciting opportunities. The challenge with that is how do you talk about that? And a lot of organizations slip into a dialogue that ends up being, hey, my new thing is you know, better than your old thing because X, right? And if you're doing that, you're by definition playing in somebody else's sandbox. You're letting somebody else write the rules. And, and more importantly, you're not reframing the conversation in a way that gets to your unique insights. So the good news about you know, technolo the technology marketplace broadly is 
and we see this in in the HR space and in in the talent and recruiting space all the time. Everybody's talking about this giant move to skills. The problem with that is the giant move to skills looks remarkably like the old way they used to do all the same stuff before. So the buzzwords are different, but the core technology and the core approach is the same. So there's got to be a way to step back. And I think that's one of the things, particularly around category, that sometimes is misunderstood is there's also an assumption that particularly if you're in a technology space, which is where a lot of category related things happen, that it has to cost a billion dollars. And it doesn't. It has to come from a place of culture and a, a place of aspiration. And I think that's uh, what Satya and, and Microsoft have done over the last decade. That company is fundamentally different. They are still not great in terms of category creation, but they have the underlying culture and the aspiration. And you've seen that in their their financial returns. You've seen that in terms of them being you know, noted now as a great place to work, which wasn't necessarily the case. It might have been lucrative. It might have been functional, but it wasn't great. And, and I think there's some intersections here beyond just the how do we talk about what we do that are part of both bringing the category to life and then expanding what that looks like over time. You know, while we're talking about culture and personalities, I, I think it's self-evident that, that, that Mark Benioff has been a very, very important personality and cultural leader in the success that, that Salesforce has had in establishing itself as a category leader. Do you think there's any other lessons we can learn from this category machine that Salesforce has become? Uh, I think there's a couple. Again, one of the mistakes that people sometimes make when they talk about category is that they, beyond it has to cost a lot of money, is that it is a sales conversation or it's a marketing thing that you do. It's a wrapper around the other stuff that you do. And in fact, no, it's not. It's a strategy. Like if, if the strategy was we want to be pervasive at Salesforce and we want to grow, we want to bring the cloud to every single market space you know, around the world, that's very much the aspiration. They were playing a platform game long before they were talking about being a platform, number one. Um, the other thing, going back to the earliest days of Salesforce and, and even when they listed publicly, they talked about CRM. They had a vision around CRM and their ticker symbol is CRM. They sold a lot of sales automation, right? They did not have a fully fledged, it wasn't until they were 10 years in that they really had the entire suite. Um, that became CRM, but they were always framing the conversation in a much bigger way, talking about what does great look like and, and where do you want to go. And I think the another thing of the many lessons you learned there is um, back to Dreamforce, and you commented on this a second ago. Um, years ago, when I was at Salesforce, we used to talk about and plan for Dreamforce for us as wanting to be the Mac world of cloud computing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that Benioff does very well. He's always got an analogy to paint the picture so people understand the fro too and, and where they're trying to go. But the aspiration was we want to bring the faithful together. We want to have education. We want to have entertainment. But we also want to have community. And I think part of the power of, of categories when they're done really well is you're creating a movement. You're creating something where people say, yeah, it shouldn't work like that. It should work like this. And I'm in and I absolutely believe that. And if you can spark that belief and activate the people, and that's what you get at Dreamforce when they shut down San Francisco and, and everything becomes a Salesforce party for a week, is there are a lot of people who are just frankly true believers. There are some people who just believe that they're going to get great stock returns. They, they could care less about the technology, but they know what their portfolio looks like. And then you have exactly the opposite end, you know, people who are not sophisticated or not um, in the financial markets, what they are is solving problems. And Salesforce is helping them solve problems and find other people like them with a shared interest and a shared focus on that. And I think that's part of the trick here. 
is really bringing that to life. All our listeners who are thinking about the category journey should be starting to ask themselves, you know, what's the reason to believe in what we're doing here? 100%. Very close to home to you, I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of AI on category and talent. And you're in both of those games in your current role at Harview, which have staked out the category of human potential intelligence. Can you just talk a little bit about, about your own work at Harview and the application of AI into this whole talent process? Yeah, I think AI really brings scale and it also reduces bias. And, you know, the kind of the brief history of time with HireVue that, you know, is coming up on 20 years now. In the early days, the, the founding story of HireVue was the, the initial founder, Mark Newman, you know, graduating with a business degree from a small college in Utah, aspiring to work on Wall Street and saying, hey, I want to work for Goldman Sachs. And he writes a letter to Goldman Sachs and he sends his resume. And Goldman Sachs writes back and says, sorry, we don't recruit at your school. Good luck. And his response was, that's not okay. I'm going to fix this. So we are the people that originally invented the, the category that became known as video interviewing. And in the old days, we used to take commercial cameras put them in the post, send them to you so you could set it on your desk and say, hi, I'm Pat and I'm great for this job and let me explain, put it back in the post to you, download that file and send it to the company. So you, you fast forward to current times and it took about 10 years, but Goldman Sachs became a customer of ours and the CEO has been quoted talking about HireVue, but what HireVue allows Goldman to do is interview at scale globally for their intern and summer programs. So they recruit across you know 600 colleges and universities. Uh, last year, they interviewed a, approximately 260,000 people for about 1,500 jobs. There is no human way to just throw bodies at that to have 250,000 interviews for a short summer piece if you don't have technology. And that's where AI comes in, allowing them to put together a process that allows them to put candidates into tiers and really decide who might be a fit so that the talent team spend all their time with the candidates that are most likely to be the right match for Goldman and to do it at scale. It's a really interesting example because to me that's a precise example of different, not better. It's entirely different. Goldman Sachs could find some really, really good people at that little school in Iowa, which they'd have just missed before. What are the two things about using AI other than this clearly powerful taking out of bias that's going to make people go, I have no idea why we didn't do this talent acquisition process using AI before. Yeah, the, the first thing I think to understand, Jonathan, is that all AI is not the same thing, particularly in hiring. So there's a difference between a, a static AI model and a learning model. So in the world of hiring, the first thing to understand is we're talking about a static validated model that's then locked. And what that means in actual practice then is when you run a candidate through something that's going to score them with AI, every candidate is treated the same. It's not an ongoing learning thing where you get the drift that you get with chat GPT and some other things that it, that it enables consistency and it reduces mitigation and you come back annually to make sure it's working as intended and tune it so you're potentially driving the bias out of the model. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you don't do it both as a candidate or as a company, you're going to lose a lot of big opportunities. And I was speaking to somebody who runs talent technology at our customer advisory board earlier this year, 
And she said, we, we are promoting inside and outside in the community. We want people to follow the process and we want them to use AI because particularly for, for junior candidates and new hires and people coming out of university, if they don't go through the AI process, they basically guarantee they don't get the job. And I said, tell me, tell me why that is. And she said, well, we can't tell anything about you and what you're capable of based on your CV, particularly if you're just out of university where you have no meaningful work experience. And so I think that's the, the mind shift that people have to make, which is AI is really helping you decode potential. It is not something that's keeping you or is in some way relegating humans to the second seat. It is actually putting them in this position where they can really apply the critical thinking to understand who are those candidates? Who, how do we get the best of the best for every single role in the organization? And if you don't do it, you're missing a trick. Yeah, I think we just have to get used to the idea that AI is simply another tool and human beings have been using tools for tens of thousands of years to get a better result. If you rewind the clock back five years ago or, um, or even a year, there was a lot of fear of AI. AI is sort of this boogeyman black box thing and in a hiring context, it got shorthanded to AI is going to take your job. Like suddenly we're down this path that, you know, robots make all the decisions and that, you know, part of what we're missing here is the, the human connection. And I think one of the extraordinary things that's happened just in the last 12 months around this conversation broadly is the arrival of ChatGPT. Like the notion of a large language model isn't of itself like only a year old, but the fact that it had a conversational interface and became accessible to everybody who had internet connectivity is a game changer. And what the statistics would say, and there's a whole bunch of um, places you can find this, but I would look at some Pew research. People went from fear to FOMO and that they can't get into a, you know an AI conversation quick enough. You have kids, I have kids. Like Their approach that is all mobile, that is all AI, AI is your friend, and why would I do anything I didn't have to do if AI can just do it for me? I think portends a giant shift that we're just in the the very early days of, and, and organizations are really going to struggle as they try to figure out how to make sense of that in their own hiring environments and with their own talent teams. It's extraordinary the speed at which this has happened, as you say. I mean, can we possibly imagine in the early 1800s people going from absolute fear and loathing of steam engines to loving them within a year? That whole process took 50 or 60 years then, and now it happens almost immediately. Exactly. And if you think well, a little closer to home time-wise that you, know, you and I both lived through, right? It's like the introduction of you know mobile phones. And that's the, the compare here. Like Gen AI is expanding at a rate that mirrors mobile phones as one of the, you know, the fastest growing things in history. So we're talking internet, you know, the rise of the internet and the rise of mobility and so on. Gen AI is the next big wave that's about to crash. And it, it just is a game changer when you think about innovation and opportunity, as well as the idea that it's accessible to everybody. You've got to learn to earn. When you're driving a company to category leadership, and as you mentioned earlier when we were talking, it can be quite a long road. If you were to say, here are three things you must get right early on to get yourself properly on the rails of that journey, what would they be? I think number one, you have to focus on what is different about your offer or your, your focus. What is the unique insight? Because there are lots of people who have lots of great ideas and, and lots of those ideas have value, but 
the difference between good and great, kind of the 10x jump, is being able to frame a conversation in a completely different way such that people really um, say, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, tell me more, right? If you can shift them and, and engage them, suddenly once they see it your way, they can't, they can't unsee it. So example, back to we used Salesforce as an example, and there's lots of pieces about Salesforce, but what they don't get enough credit for is, from a category perspective, is Salesforce is the company that invented the notion of customer success. That was later popularized by Gainsight and others, because the insight they had was if you buy a, something via a subscription, it's both easy to get you in the boat, it's also easy for you to leave if you're not getting value. And Salesforce is always priced as a premium, you know, a premium play. So what they determined was they needed a human that they called a customer success manager that was all about providing best practices and how-tos, both from a business perspective and a technical perspective. And that that fostered its own subcategory and its own sub-industry. And now what used to be just customer support is now customer success globally. So the first thing I think is you got to focus on that differentiated approach. The second thing that you need to do is be able to craft the story. Start with why. Why is this important? Why is this critical? Why is this something that you have to contemplate? And a lot of uh, organizations, and particularly in technology, we spend a lot of time talking about bits and bytes and why you needed this and why our schmumble is better than, than the old schmumble, and nobody cares. Um, not just because they don't understand what schmumble is and why I need it, but they don't get how it fits into something that comes from an authentic place and is based on solving a problem. And then you've got to be relentless with that story. Back to, again, Salesforce being the same example. They've been telling fundamentally the same story for the last you know, 20 years. It has new chapters. It has new exciting things that pop up. But you've got to be really disciplined in making sure everybody is telling the same story in the same way every single day. Do you have any thoughts about how companies blow it? They might actually develop a category leadership position, then they'll do something which instantly invalidates that, that whole journey. One of the things that they do is they don't think about category being pervasive in everybody's responsibility, meaning that you know, whether you write code or you're in customer success or you happen to be the person on the front line doing retail or whatever, they don't understand what the value proposition and, and what the dialogue is and use it as a way to map back to mission, vision, and values, but also sense of behavior, right? So there's no there's no connection between the, our aspiration about the world and how we're going to bring it to life. They also are really sloppy. But like the, the big mistake I think a lot of organizations make is it's sort of the flavor of the month. They treat it like a marketing campaign, not not as a strategic initiative, and they don't play the long game. This is a years-long game to do it correctly with the idea, again, that you need to change what the, the horizon looks like and continue to reset the rules. It was like, well, that was great for this year. It didn't really work, or we're not sure it worked, so we're going to try something else. And whatever advantage or that they might have had, um, it just gets lost. Two really, really important points there, uh, and it keeps coming through, is category is a strategy. It affects everybody in the organization potentially in different ways. They may have different contributions to it. But as a leader, and I think the leadership is very important in this, you have to constantly impress upon everybody in the organization that category is their responsibility. 
in various different ways, and it is the strategy of the company. And if you fail to do that, then I think the wheels quickly spin off. The other thing you, you need to do is you need to have confidence on purpose and just lock it in. And, and sometimes it's hard to see, particularly when you're in a senior level role, something that you're now bored of that you've said so many times, you know, people are just now starting to get, and I didn't really see it. We went through a category exercise uh, when I was at Altify and we were really in the, the sales tech space. And we put together a category about, you know, customer revenue optimization. And we spent a lot of time training people and taking that message to market. And I think it was one of the critical pieces that helped to get us acquired. And the interesting thing post-acquisition was that I had a lot of people come back to me and say, hey, the new company that acquired us doesn't get our category. Like they're breaking our thing. And even some people who are who are skeptical, right? There's no, nobody more skeptical than a senior salesperson who, who, with 20 years experience, who's been very successful and you try to teach them uh, about a new way to talk about and do the thing, they're very resistant. And lo and behold, what you find out, and sometimes you need to have that discontinuous change before you actually get the data on another channel. But I had people who I thought were resistant and didn't quite get it, come back to me and say, they're screwing it up. Like they've we've lost the message on on category, like what do we do? And it was simultaneously both really frustrating and really heartwarming that he finally, like if I wasn't sure before, you know, I got really clear after the fact that, yeah, in, in fact, we had 100% been down the right path and that people really got it and they internalized it and that's critical for success. You live at the epicenter of tech VCs, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about whether you think our VCs, the category friend or the category foe, times are tougher than they have been in decades. Are the VCs starting to think this is the opportunity to categorize for the next upturn, or are they so busy trying to consolidate their investments and strip costs out of their companies that they're not really looking? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Jonathan. I think there's a couple different things because the, the VC industry is no different than a lot of other industries. Insofar as during a downturn, you shake out you know the pretenders from the people who are actually the experts. In, in this and having some money of which lots of people have money, it's, you know, that's always the, the dialogue for our founders. You know, if you're going to take money, you need to get really clear that it's good money and it has potential value add. And it points to the notion of category with the idea that, again, you're trying to get to a, a discontinuous change. It's a little bit the, the, the Peter Thiel, you know, zero to one kind of a theory here for a second that you want to have ideally no competition and you want to have VCs that will help you carve out your uniqueness such that you're just playing a fundamentally different game than everybody else. And I think there's there's really two sides of this coin in the current state right now because the economy is not doing any of us any favors. And certainly VCs aren't writing checks for the fifth best version of you know the next iteration of Uber or whatever the segment is for a second. Like if you're not first, you're last. And that's a a little bit of a, a reality check in terms of you got to be that much better to get funded right now. But you also need to have, if you're going to go try to get VC money, you need to be able to tell a big story that says this is a mammoth opportunity. So not only do we see the world differently and we have defendable uniqueness, but this is a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars opportunity. If you don't do that, you're going to have a real challenge. The flip side of the coin too, going back to where we were talking about with AI is 
what's happened over the, just in the last year is there were more than 200 funding rounds of organizations that took more than $50 million. So while there's a lot of money on the sideline, there's a lot of money going into AI for specific use cases, both you know horizontally and vertically. And and just having an AI something isn't good enough. People will write a big check if if you've got differentiated approach because the power of generative AI is not the the AI itself. It's how it maps to data or other assets and other IP that you have to really change an experience. But do you think there's been any change in the way that the VCs are viewing those investments or are we in the mid- middle of another little mini gold rush? If you have something that is really unique in AI, there's a mini gold rush going on and that's one of the things behind the narrative that San Francisco is back and is definitely the hub of this, um, which I think a lot of us in the Bay Area are rooting for, that we need San Francisco to be the, the shining star that it, it has been over decades. But it also, I think the VCs are, and because they're going to have problems raising their next fund if they're not, if they can't clearly point to success and possibility of returns in a, in a world where everybody's tightening the belts, then the, like the level of requirement to both, you know, for the VCs to raise their next fund as well as for, for founders to get higher is, is that much harder. But I would say my observation from this seat is it's always been a little bit better to get category inputs and to get money in the States than it has been in from European VCs. They think bigger, they have a higher t- risk tolerance, they're they're going to write bigger checks generally, and they're going to give you more runway. And certainly Americans have always had a more positive mindset than Europeans, but I think it's about uh, time the Europeans caught up. Uh, I think so too. And I think that's one of the benefits of being in the Bay Area too, is there's just more optimism. I've lived through several downturns now and Hey, the, the problem we all are suffering through is money was basically free for the last, you know, decade plus, and now it's it's time to recalibrate. That doesn't mean that there's not a massive amount of opportunity. And I think you're seeing that with Gen AI going to be the thing that helps is one of the, the parts that feeds the engine to get us economically, globally move it at a faster clip. Is generative AI really a category? Uh, that is a great question. But I think the, the short answer from my perspective, Jonathan, is no that Gen AI is an interesting enabling technology, and you see that in the arms race going on with OpenAI, Microsoft's got a play, you know, now Elon Musk and X has a play with Grok, the, the Googlers have been cranking for a while and just introduced a multimodal approach to, to AI that's pretty revolutionary, but I would argue it's not a category unto itself, it is an interesting enabling technology. And that is something that it, the the aha, the opportunity for founders and for innovators and for really any organization is to think about how to apply that technology in an innovative way to change the experience and drive business results. It's not a thing unto itself. It's a progenitor then at best. It's effectively coal. Coal is not a category, but it fuels literally a whole lot of categories in terms of engines, in terms of gas production and so on and so on. And so well, on. I think it, it has the potential to be jet fuel. Because it changes both how you code and what you can do, but I think particularly watching some of the children's toys and the the visualization technology that's arrived, and the, the fact of the matter is that you can, with the right technology, spit out fully workable code and websites and prototypes and the whole thing. So it further has lower, lowered the barrier in terms of what's possible for an individual or for a founder to do something really meaningful in a way that has a lot more applicability and dimensionality than uh, than coal does. But I think fundamentally you're spot on, right? This is a massive accelerator and a massive opportunity for organizations to think different and really get an outsized benefit 
from that technology and, and, and really accelerate what they're in business to do. Things have settled down with OpenAI and they, along with a number of other generative AI competitors, are going to be the enabling technologies that will allow a lot of AI-based categories to develop. I think that's right. And we'll find that a couple of years down the path where people don't even talk about generative AI anymore because it's just a thing that everybody has. It's not a thing unto itself. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Pat Morrissey and Harview, go to harview.com. That's H-I-R-E-V-U-E.com. If you want to explore further the category design topics discussed in this episode, please read our blog posts at bcategorical.com or tune in to other episodes of The Difference Engine wherever you get your podcasts. And going into 2024, if you're in the tech business and need a strategy to categorize, then of course, we can help. Get in touch with us via the show notes or at bcategorical.com. And remember, don't be better, be different.